everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. In one way, the history of science can be summed up by saying that humanity is continually discovering we're not as special as we think we are. Couple this with the fact that every week on this podcast, we find out how complex communication is, and a very thought-provoking topic emerges. What if humans aren't special when it comes to communicating? And what does this say about the world that we live in? So, um, you brought this one up. Yep. And, um, you know, we, we talk about this on the show. It, it almost, it seems regular, right? And it's usually, <laughs> I brought it up. <laughs> you brought it up, but usually I'm the one that that's always coming back to it, right? Yep. I'm always saying, well, you know, think about this concept. Do animals do it? You know, and that's sort of a, yeah. it's sort of, um, a way of looking at, at a behavior or, um, a, a way of thinking about things or a concept and saying, is this lodged early in our evolution early on, or is it something that's universal across um, animals or even across life forms? Mm-hmm. Um, and that changes um, our perspective on it philosophically. It changes, you know, how we think about it and its importance in our, in our lives. So um, what let's, let's take, you know, our topic today is non-human communication, yeah. but let's start with what is communication? <laughs> <laughs> oh my i just came off reading a, a, a marvelous science fiction piece um where it was a sort of horror science fiction mix as a retelling of the house of usher it's just out really cool and there's a sentient lake um um, mycology plays a part, so it's really about um, fungus and mushrooms and developing. And the and the lake. Uh, I want to tell you the title because I don't want to spoil this for people. But it, it, but essentially, the lake's hardest problem to overcome when it's uh, working on taking over people was to figure out how humans communicate, because it could not get. It didn't occur to it that the, the idea of making noises with glottal stops, with a little <laughs> flap going up and down on an air tube, uh, could somehow mean something. <laughs> yeah. And and I thought about that in relation to this because this article we found in the Guardian that I found in the Guardian, shout out to you because I thought this is this is this is our stuff we've talked about. It's about bioacoustics, which is listening to biological entities and the sounds that they make. Well, so the idea of what is communication is, this is vast. I mean, if I try to boil it down, I'm not even going to go to the dictionary. Let's just try to, communication is trading of information between two beings. Let's start with that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I honestly think that's a pretty good description because communication, I think the people default to language, but communication is much more broad than that um as a matter of fact we all communicate things about ourselves um involuntarily right there are things that i say about myself just by being a white male in my mid-30s from you know this part of the country yes 
or having a certain level of education or having a certain hair color even. Um, nope. you know, these things are signals, right? And signals is, um, an important part of communication. As, as kinesthetics uh, is, is what you say with your body. Yeah. And this is one that I encounter a lot, right? Because, um, I'm a, I'm, I'm a pretty easygoing guy. Uh, I get along with almost everybody. Um, and I've got a lot of patience, but at the same time, I'm not a social person. Mm -hmm. And so, um, a lot of people who end up, um, getting to know me, most of my friends, you know, they, they joke, they say, well, we didn't become friends. You were adopted by extroverts, right? (laughs) Somebody really had to, somebody really had to interact with somebody who was putting off the vibes that they did not want to be interacted with in order for this friendship to occur. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm usually somebody who's sitting in the corner of a room, um, has their arms crossed. Um, I never speak first, even, even at work, you know, if I'm walking past somebody for the first time in the morning and we make eye contact, if they don't say good morning, I'm walking right past them, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's even in a class you listened. Yeah. And you certainly contributed and advanced the conversation, but you weren't the first one to. Right. And so, so, you know, despite the fact that I do get along with people very well, um, and I'm pretty easygoing and I've got a lot of patience and these, these things that seem to be very pro-social, um, I put off a lot of signals that say, don't interact with me. Right. And so signaling, yeah, signaling plays a, a very big and part. And that's trading information. You're right. Or that's, that's giving of communication, a, a kind of communication. I had this conversation with my wife this morning. It was a little, you know, you use cats as, as social grease in conversation. And uh, one of my cats is sitting prominently on a chair not far away from the water dish, sitting fully upright, very regal, looking at me. And I was doing some dishes, and I glanced up, and the cat's still looking at me. So that I, I, I dried my hands, and, and I looked up, and the cat's still looking at me. Okay, he wants something. And I went in, and the water bowl was empty. And so I went back out and got the water. He saw me coming with the water. He hopped down and went to the water dish. I poured the water in. There was communication. It, it wasn't language in the sense of talking about philosophy, but something occurred. Yeah. And so that's a very good example of, of effective... Information was traded. Yeah, effective <laughs> communication between a human and a cat. My experience with my cat is much different. <laughs> he's, he's very vocal, right? And uh, our, the running, uh, the running comment that we use in our house is either me or my wife will say, he'll be meowing at us and we'll go, I know you have food. I know you have water. I know you have a clean box. What do you want? You know, and he just falls around yelling. Um, and this is, this is pretty interesting. I was reading an article today, um, by a professor at Harvard who studied, um, communication um and actually did uh, you know some pretty cool research with parrots and dolphins and apes and things um this and one of the things that struck me about what she wrote in her article was that um you know in defining communication there's there's several um criteria that have to be met right um you can't have interchangeability which means that 
Um, if we put a red button in a cage and the thing knows that every time it hits the button, it gets food. That's not communication or that's not language, right? Because it's information, right? That's yeah. communication, but it's not language. Because if you substitute a green button or a blue button or something else, there will be a conditioned behavior. Um, so scientists have several criteria to determine what constitutes language, what constitutes um, even baser level communications and things. And one of the things that struck me, what she said was, um, you know, when we are looking at animals, bird songs or um, dolphin sounds or these sorts of things, um, we, it's pretty easy to determine the, the signaling communications. Oh, oh I, I want to mate. I want to eat. I want to do this or that or the other thing. She said, but there's a lot of sounds that animals make that we don't under, we can't interpret. Mm-hmm. And so the current state of science <laughs> with empiricism is just that um, it must not be important, right? <laughs> which yeah. is kind of a, uh, you know, or, or at least they don't understand it needs, it needs to be looked at further. But if, if we, if they see a, be, you know, a behavior or they see a vocalization or something and then nothing clear follows it, mm-hmm. well, there's no way of knowing what it means. Yes. And, and, and what you said earlier, it just makes me smile because I've said, the, the same kind of thing. Your box is clean. You've got fresh water. You've got food. What else could you want? Well, the, let's look at us as beings. That's like the baseline of Maslow's hierarchy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what else could we possibly want? Uh, because we don't necessarily go first toward thinking, oh, you're a much more complicated being that. Right. And you want to know what my cat normally wants when he's yelling? He wants us to sit down so he can lay on our laps yeah. and purr and sleep. He so he actually wants something that is higher up on that higher. He wants comfort. Yeah. So there's there's again that that sort of um, signaling. And yeah. as you and I were talking about before the show, every every cat has a bit of a different personality and the different things that they they do or don't want. Some cats hate being touched or picked up or these sorts of things. And again, we have that tricky word personality, right? Yeah. Per, using the word personality for things that aren't persons. <laughs> anthropic right? stuff, anthropocentric stuff. So, yeah. So, communication. Some exchange of information between two beings. Is any interaction with a living thing communication? Hmm. Let's try this. Any action with a living thing is a reading of signs or a possibility of reading signs. I had a very um, interesting experience with this last weekend. We, I think I mentioned on last week's episode, we were, we were going to a wedding that day. So we go to the wedding. Um, and of course there's, there's a lot of things that go into communication here, right? We, <laughs> we were sort of last minute guests. We had just met this couple a few times um, but my wife is a charmer, right? So they were like, oh, you guys should come to our wedding, even though we've only met you a couple of <laughs> times. So we go and um, at the reception, we look at the little cards to figure out who we're sitting at the table. <laughs> of course, it's nobody that we know. And so I groan, right? <laughs> Amanda goes, well, we're just going to have to make new friends. And I go, you know, I hate making new friends. I don't make new friends. This is not my thing. Um, but we sat at a at a table with... A couple other couples, and sure enough, we ended up making friends with them. Amanda has all their information. Um, 
even I uh, had a good time with them. But at one point, um, a game that we had was um, in the the wedding's bulletin was listed that the the groom's father was Doctor So and So, and so I said to the table, I said, "Who wants to take?" bets on what kind of doctor <laughs> the groom's father is. So, oh, okay. And so we had to just, it's signaling, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at this man, well, what, what does he look like? My wife says an orthodontist. I say a history professor, right? Everybody goes around the table. Turns out my wife was right. He's an orthodontist, right? <laughs> Did she know that ahead of time? Yeah, she just knew. <laughs> I looked at him. So I said, well, I'm studying to be a doctor. What, what kind of doctor do you think I'm going to be, right? And so the table goes around. And um, it turns everybody, rather than diversifying the responses to increase the likelihood of success, which is what I would do, I'm thinking as a, as a you know, aspiring scientist, everybody says um, uh, in, in exercise, uh, exercise scientist, right? And I go, no, I'm, I'm starting to be a psychologist. And a guy goes, oh, no, he's like, now I feel like you're you're reading me. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said I'm not trying to read you, but I did ask the question because I'm curious why you think why you would think the thing that you think, right? And there's nothing wrong with trying to read somebody. There's, yeah. even that kind of response. Don't read me. Well, we're a book. Yeah. Are we an open? We use this metaphor. I'll say I'm an open book. I'm a closed book. Well. That doesn't mean I don't want to read you. Right. I might have to pry the covers off. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what all of us were trying to do with the groom's father, right? right. We were all trying to read this this book. But people, um, I think people fear psychologists because they think that they have some sort of magical insight into parts of their being that they, that they want to keep hidden. Taking us back to the illusion of explanatory depth. We hear the word psychologist and we think we know everything that that means, right. <laughs> and we don't. <laughs> yeah, I, and I explain that to myself. There's several types of psychologists, right? There's there's therapists and there's research psychologists. I said I'm going to be. I want to try to be a research psychologist. Like I'm more interested in looking at pictures of people's brains and and, and data and crunching numbers than I am um, actually talking with anybody <laughs> about, their, about their problems to actually try to figure out how to read them and help them. Right. So you are all communicating. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you were trading information or you were poking secondhandedly to get information. You were making it safer by playing a game. <laughs> but every game is a test. And every conversation is a test, even if it is and we don't design it. So I uh, So that so that we've we've established the communication is the seeking and trading of some kind of information. And you said, what did I say to say science? What was the question you asked? So is any interaction with a living being communication? Uh, uh, of a kind in that information, whether accurate or not, might, might be traded. Uh, I'm walking down a path in the park, and I see something slithering across the path. Perhaps it stops. I stop. Why? Because the sign is that there's a snake. Do I know what kind of snake it is? Oh, it's too far away. I don't know that I want to know what kind of snake it is. I'm not a pathologist. So, so there's, there's been the communication in, in the animal world, coloration and, and uh, uh, all kinds of signaling come from animals to uh, say, don't eat me to mm-hmm. other animals or I'm fierce. 
to scare other animals away. Yeah, and this is where it gets really interesting, right? Because in that article that we were reading, um, yeah, the bioacoustics. Yeah, it was it was all about sound, um, which yeah. is that you know when in the absence of humans, if you place these high sensitivity microphones, um, you'll actually find that plants will emit a sound um, that will draw you know bees and and bats and things towards them and then those animals will emit sounds that cause the plants to produce more nectar right yeah so there's definitely a communication happening Absolutely. but um you know communication is even much more basic than than that right like you said i really am leaning towards any interaction between two living things as being communication mm-hmm. um i i, I I'm thinking of this in this article, one of the examples, because they, they had an AI um, algorithm helping to sort, concatenate, and um, presenting so they could interpret some of the stuff. So a tomato calls out if it's damaged. Mm. <laughs> That's an attempt at communication. Yeah. Who's it calling to? Other tomatoes? A giant tomato's going to come along and rescue us? Super tomato <laughs> arrives? No, that, no. But, but, but I think that it's fascinating and it, it, it offers us the humility of rethinking everything we want to think about the world. Yeah. And the other article I was reading today mentioned that it said that what usually what they're communicating, and again, they, until recently with this article you know they thought a lot of this communication was happening through um mycelia you know mushroom Mm -hmm. you know fungal Mm -hmm. um connections and these sorts of things now we're finding out that no tomatoes actually emit a sound they actually use a, a you know an audible thing to um to communicate they're being damaged and the article that i was reading today said you know Lots of plants do this, maybe not with sound, but lots of plants communicate um, that if they start getting eaten by bugs, they'll communicate to other plants around them, hey, there's bugs that are going to eat you. And then that those plants start producing um, in, you know, a, a chemical in them that is a, help repel repels the bugs. the bugs. Right. Turtles. Nobody ever thought turtles communicated because we couldn't hear them. Mm-hmm. We have this inherent bias about hearing. And as we said in other episodes, our senses, phenomenology is exploding in my head with this, mm. with this article because <laughs> what we see and touch and hear and, and hear particularly with in this case, that's how we define our world. Mm-hmm. If we can't hear it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. And that's, <laughs> Which, especially like the Jedi librarian Star Wars thing. Master Kenobi, if it's not in the Jedi, if yeah. it's not the Jedi library, it doesn't exist. <laughs> right. And, and that librarian in the Jedi archives reminded me of this Harvard professor that I was reading this morning where, mm. where they said, yes, if we, if we observe a vocalization from an animal and there's nothing clear that happens after it, we just disregard that vocalization. It's like, well, think about that with humans, right? What if, you know, the only words we paid attention to were ones that led to mating or eating or drinking or these sorts of things, right? Then 
what we're doing right now would have no meaning to an alien that was observing us the same and they way. They say right? we don't have intelligence. They say, look at, these, <laughs> look at these two animals that got together in a room and then just made a bunch of sounds for an hour and left and nothing <laughs> happened, right? It doesn't make any a, sense. A, a person that encounters something, whether it's a, a little grandchild or a, a fully adult human being, and sees something and says, what? Well, nobody responds. It's just... It's an, ex- it's an expression. It's an exclamation. But it meant something. Yeah. <laughs> it's for, it might have meant, I don't believe what I'm seeing, or that actually happened, or how did that happen, or all the, the cluster of questions that could be asked. But again, our aliens would have said. Yeah. Oh. And, and maybe the aliens wouldn't necessarily, but that's the way humans do it, right? And you and I are going to talk about um, a specific book in, in a few weeks that you and I are both reading yeah. that addresses this sort of thing. But I, I have to bring up the one concept now because I think it's relevant. In physics, right, the way that they, they study phenomena with, you know, causal interactions, right, is they look at, you know, s- the small things and they go, well, we can't, we can't make use of all the information. If we, use, if we try to use all the information, things don't make sense as we scale it up. So we're just going to average everything at a small level. And then that makes sense for the things that emerge from that smaller mm-hmm. level, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that works for the standard model of physics. It, it does a really good job explaining a lot of the things around us, but it's not technically accurate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what happens is you start to see some of these things. Um, within the standard model, right? All of a sudden you go, okay, well, relativity and quantum gravity can't be reconciled. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, now we're starting to have to give all of these property, all these strange properties to, to particles in order to make things work. Uh, you know, all, all of a sudden, some of these things, when you keep go, you know, extrapolating up or you keep trying to define down, suddenly become very tricky. And I I feel like you have to go to epicycles, right? You go, well, if we just add another epicycle in there, all of a sudden this planet's orbit makes sense, right? That's what it feels like we're getting to with some of this physics as we continue to learn new things. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's kind of it's sort of the same thing, right? With With communication or with vocalizations in animals or in plants, right? We're getting more data. We're starting to see that Wow, things that we never thought made a sound make a sound. Like or, bats. Yeah, yeah. Or, which we knew made sounds, but we didn't know. They, ex- they exhibit, they do things that humans do. They babble as babies, right? They, they, they Parents babble to babies to bigger. The, the, the bats uh, hold grudges. <laughs> right. They remember insults. They, they give signs for kinship. Yeah, it's, it's just... <sighs> It's frustrating, right? Because as an aspiring scientist, right, I feel like empiricism is the best way to approach things, which is the way of saying, all right, we're going to start from a neutral spot, and then we're going to inductively um, look at things, and then from those observations, we'll try to draw conclusions, we'll develop an experiment that will establish a causal explanation. The scientific method is the best way to obtain knowledge, but it's not perfect, right? It doesn't explain everything. And those things that it doesn't explain are important, right? If you can't just you can't just average the smallest things and come up with a working model of physics. You can't just disregard communication or verbalizations that don't lead to direct behaviors 
and assume that they don't mean anything. And right? Now you're getting us to the deeper water. Yeah. So what is the relationship between communication and language? First, one must say that uh, language, and we've already essentially said it earlier, but I think it bears repetition with that question. What, what is the relationship between communication and language? There are we know there are many kinds of language across the planet, thousands, thousands of languages. But then, again, there's the non-verbal language, the grammar of movement, the, the, the look at poker experts who can recognize a tell for someone. So there, there are languages on different levels, and there are languages expansively across small groups, large groups, cultures, and, and the planetary scale things. So language language enables um, more complicated kinds of communication. Yeah, yeah, that's well said. I'm going to send you the article that I was reading this morning. Yeah, it's do. long, but it's really interesting. Like it. yeah. And um, yeah, that's what they get at is you would be surprised, everybody here would be very surprised how recently American Sign Language was actually considered a language. This was debated until the, the late 70s. I say it's well, well within my um, lifetime. <laughs> because scientists were looking at it and saying, well, is it just signals, right? And that's the thing is, is signaling and communication and trying to delineate these things from language is very difficult. Um, and especially when you start relating to other things. Okay, Coco the gorilla knows sign language. So does it know language? What is language versus communication? Um, and that's where these things come in that I was talking about earlier, right? There, you can't, basically, I, I won't go over all of the different things that, all the different strictures that they put in place to, right. to you know, determine what a language is. But what it boils down to, right, is that a language gives you abstract concepts yep. so communication is you know and this is what they found <laughs> looking at it right parrots and you know birds in general and dolphins and apes they all separated on the evolutionary tree a long long time ago 300 million years ago we all have drastically different brains from one another but we can all vocalize so the way our brains are vocalizing are very different, right? And so the key to trying to determine if a bird who can vocalize and who can communicate actually has language is determining, does the bird ever refer to something that isn't there? You know, does the bird only talk to other birds about mating or food or things it can see or that sort of stuff? Or does the bird talk about um, poetry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> or things that it can't see, things that it's never seen, these sorts of things. And so that's been our way of saying, so no, humans are the only thing that have language. Everything else just communicates vocally. That was nice and safe. But then there was another very interesting thing that happened that actually derailed this entire line of research. Um, and so what she says is, so we did these studies with dolphins and parrots and apes um, to try to see if we could teach them American language. And the key word in this article was in every single experiment, some 
progress was made. But then when the researchers tried to come together and come to a consensus about what happened and tried to discuss it, they tore each other's research apart. And by tearing each other down, they lost all of their funding. And that avenue of research, of looking into whether humans and animals of a higher order can mutually exchange language versus communication, um, that really hasn't happened in the past 30 or 40 years. So that's just sort of in a nutshell, the scientific, um, very, very recent history of this idea of, well, do animals have language? It's a fascinating concept um, that was cut very short, right? There's so much more to be done with it. And this uh, bioacoustics research, I think, is opening that door. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We we already can tell you this, 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 this is going on. Turtles warn their their children about predators. We didn't even know turtles could make sound. <laughs> right. We're, we're still established, but, but we, we have this bias still built in. Oh, acoustics. It's got to be sound making now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> we can't possibly imagine or we don't want to go there. It's too, too complicated, too many other avenues. So we'll just limit it to sound. Sound that machines can hear that's that humans can't well that's a start <laughs> yeah and and i mean that creates some it still creates problems right because mm-hmm. a, if a tomato screams when it's getting eaten um although that sounds you know pretty pretty wild on its surface value you can still say okay well that's just signaling it's just communicating right it's saying to other tomatoes probably what i was saying with the other plants right i'm being eaten if you guys don't want to get eaten pr- start producing some you know insecticide <laughs> But the one with bats, right? Mm-hmm. Bat mothers just speak, they speak baby language to their, to their kids. How do you justify that as being just signaling or just communication? It sure seems like there's a, almost a language thing happening there. You're an emotional thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's something, it seems like there's something that goes beyond. We, you know, we've talked about trying to define communication. And communication itself is such a basic thing and signaling is such a basic thing that, okay, well, when does that evolve into language? And we talked about, okay, well, it has to be an abstract thing or it has to be talking about something that's not there. It has to be referring to something that's not concrete. That's, I mean, babbling. When when mothers just speak nonsense to babies and babies speak nonsense back to them, they're not referring to any concrete things. They're developing- A give and take. Yeah. They're developing a, oh- I, you're saying something to you. I'm paying attention, blah, 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 and pretty soon the words emerge. I mean, even even something that seems like it's baseline, like um, this article talked about what moths, hmm. moths that essentially would develop bio jamming echolocation to to keep bats away. Hmm. They develop jammers. <laughs> so now we think we're so clever when we develop uh, jamming that can ruin a signal when we're engaged in some kind of um, spy <laughs> situation. Well, that's because we're intelligent. Well, okay, they develop jammers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They didn't necessarily go to a lab and say, "Hey, Moss, come on over here." What's probably more uh, more efficient, although not in terms of time scale necessarily, and in- more than just. Yeah, and intelligence is is an interesting word, right? Does communicative ability directly correlate with intelligence? So what we mean by intelligence. Right. 
What do we mean by intelligence? So, yeah. So we're seeing that all of these things um, that don't have brains can communicate. Mm-hmm. And now we're finding that some of these things that don't have brains um, vocalize or create sound, right? Yep. And so there are still some things that, and there's some things that make you scratch your head a little bit. Like in the article <laughs> I was reading today, right? They said, well, we see that these trees communicate with one another. And the way they do it is through this fungus, fungal mycelia. Mm-hmm. Like, and what we found is that the fungal mycelia um, has a, the structure of neurons. Okay. <laughs> and we start to think, ah, and we know neurons have to do with brains, don't we? And, right. and then we think about the Gaia hypothesis, the Gaia mm-hmm. hypothesis, based on a Greek concept of the world itself being alive. Mm. That, 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 that doesn't stun me. I mean, it's amazing, but it doesn't, it's not stunning if one thinks about things like you just said when we studied the smaller parts of, you know, intelligence, the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skills. Hmm. So, I mean, if you think about it, skills, undisputable, right? A tomato plant. If a tomato, you know, you have to imagine that the first tomato plant getting eaten probably just got eaten, right? Mm -hmm. But at some point, it developed a skill to say, to communicate with probably other tomatoes on its same vine. So it's still the same plant. It developed a skill to of self-preservation by emitting this sound that causes the rest of the plant to per start producing these chemicals that you know re- reflect and the sound the contains knowledge <laughs> yeah the sound I, contains a packet of knowledge so crows we've we've talked about uh, corvids before but we know that they are we even use the word intelligence with crows mm, yeah because they pass information down generationally and they, they problem see solve. somebody that you know, they yeah. problem solve. How many they can count people going to a house if the same number of people don't come out? They're warned. Warning. They're, they're, somebody with a red beret did something to them three corvid generations earlier. They've passed that information. Now you don't trust somebody with a red beret. Red beret person comes up in the tree, and they attack. Yeah, that's knowledge. Yeah, it may not be always accurate knowledge, but when is our knowledge always accurate? Right. Right. So. Definitely, um, hmm. yeah. So, <laughs> so this is, I mean, this is a very important question, right? Because we think of intelligence as being a higher order thing. Yeah. And like we just talked about for the first half an hour in this show, communication is a very, very basic thing. So the idea that communicative ability correlates with intelligence. Well, I mean, communicative ability, based upon the context of the conversation we've had so far, mm-hmm. if any interaction between two living things is communicative, right? Um, if I'm stepping on grass, that's communication of some kind. And mm-hmm. really, the communication is um, that I'm stomping through it, and then the plant is going to know it's being harmed and, and pass that on to other other blades of grass, right? Now, is that is that intelligent, though, right? We know language is, has, is intelligence. Communication 
that's that's a much harder question, right? Because and I think the knowledge is the key word there, right? I think skills, man, you look at skills <laughs> and and all across the the animal and the plant and the fungal kingdom, you yep. say yep. these things, every single one of them learns skills. Yep. Knowledge is is the harder one to and I think the crows is a great example, right? Because knowledge, if you're passing something generationally, that's knowledge. But like we talked about the tomato plant, if the first tomato plant couldn't communicate or couldn't pass on knowledge, right, then tomato plants would just never emit a vocalization. They would just get eaten. So this evolutionary adaptation, this natural selection possibly, is that a form of intelligence? Well, and there, there's the $6 billion question, isn't it? Knowledge is defined in one place, dictionary. Facts, information, and skills acquired by a person Hmm. through experience or education, theoretical or practical understanding of a subject. It's also defined as awareness or familiarity gained by experience, a fact, or a situation. Suppose whale song... Which is already being theorized. It's not just saying the water is cold. Mm. Whale song seems to also be about clans and kinship. Whale song uh, has convinced at least some people it's about poetry and mm. telling a story. Uh, you know, I, I see nothing in this as, except the, the person-centric. Right. There's an anthropocentric <clears throat> thing that's just dropped in the middle of but it. If we take the word person out and we say facts, information, and skills acquired through experience or education. Yeah. I mean, because you can start taking certain ones, right? Okay. Facts, that might be difficult, but information. All right. So information passed through. Hmm. And then maybe you drop theoretically, say practical. Information passed through practical experience exactly what the tomato plant did when it developed this this audio signal to warn other p- tomato yeah. plants yeah and again this is that's sort of speculation because they don't say in the article that that's why it's emitting no they, but no, they it's emitting don't. it for we're, a reason it's, right? it's emitting it for a reason we don't understand that yet but we're at the, we're at the cusp here we've, we've we've found these things and this leads to the ethical Sooner or later leads to the ethical issues. I don't know if we're ready to talk about that yet. But. Yeah, we can. So how do these discoveries shape how we view our relationship with nature, right? Well, the first question that emerged in the article, and it's just I just loved it, essentially, when it gets into this, is do we have the right to listen to what these creatures are saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that, too, because it immediately puts humanity in like the place of um the cia or you know like the the yeah. government eavesdropping on us through our our smart home assistants right yeah it's, it's kind of that same thing it we know and anybody knows this anecdotally if you walk through the forest things will happen right all of a sudden it'll be quiet you'll hear a cacophony of sound and then it will drop quiet again yeah. well it wouldn't have done that if you weren't there right Things were going about their normal business. Somebody sent up a warning. Hey, oh, there's humans walking through here. And then everybody got quiet. Either they left or they didn't want to be observed or whatever. The very fact of our presence changed the dynamics. Right. So putting these microphones places, we're hearing communications that the animals don't want us to hear. 
Well, otherwise they would have made them when we were around. <laughs> well, or, or they don't have the community. They don't have the, the the physical capacity to make sounds that we can hear. Yeah, that it too. wouldn't have occurred to them that we could hear it, or maybe it did. And maybe that they, they think that we. Could. <laughs> and when we think about that, that could also be an evolutionary adaptation, right? Mm-hmm. If it's for all we know, the tomato plant developed this ultrasonic because it's above our human range of hearing. It developed this sound because it, of getting picked by human beings, right? It wanted to communicate to other tomatoes without yeah. us being able to hear that it was communicating. That's it, possible. It, it is possible. It, it's and and the another ethics problem comes up, and that's about the very fact of using the AI, which is human centric and has human biases built in, even though we're trying very hard not to do that. And so they, the, our AI is a reflection of us. And so what it's finding reflects <laughs> what we, we might interpret, but the, you know, it, it's, to me, it comes to this very <clears throat> simplistic, perhaps sounding point. And I'll apologize in advance for any insults this may cause, because it's not meant to be insulting. But when you tell a story that you say the primary purpose of humanity, its right, is to go forth, multiply, and subdue the earth. (laughs) We might take issue with that if somebody else were told, like turtles, our job is to go forth, replicate, and subdue the world. Wait a minute. We're people. It's our world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stephen Hawking um, sort of made waves uh, a few years ago when he was talking about this. He said, um, you know, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial yeah. intelligence, they, he said, they should not be sending signals out into space. He said, because, you know, that would be like um, Native Americans during you know, Columbus's era, you know, sending messages to Europeans. Hey, come here, colonize us, subdue us, make us into, into slaves, you know, take our land from us, you know, kill us, these sorts of things. And, you know, I think that that's certainly a possibility, but it does betray this anthropocentric perspective, right? Because, right, because, because that's what we do. That's what we do, right. <laughs> and so I remember, and I remember having an experience about this at a very young age. I don't know how old I was exactly, but I remember being shown in school a um a video about uh, carnivorous plants right uh. <laughs> and seeing a venus fly trap and a pitcher plant and these things eating bugs and i remember thinking to myself that just blew my little mind think this is not natural right because that's not the way i had experienced nature working up until that mm-hmm. point my human perspective of it was that animals eat plants not the other way around <laughs> it's this same thing but for adults with with these bioacoustics, right? Tomatoes scream when they're getting eaten. We go, that's not natural. <laughs> that's not the way it's supposed to be, you know, because a tomato is too basic. You know, how do they even know the mechanism of how these plants are making sounds? Well, the article didn't go into that. It's something one would want to look into more. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating topic, but, but even- it goes to show that these things. Anything that we consider shocking, it's not shocking because it's unnatural. It's not shocking because it's impossible. It's shocking because we as humans have also, you know, you think back to that, that description of knowledge. 
right? Through um, facts and information and experiences, we've developed knowledge about how things work. But as we've talked about in other episodes, we see a very small sliver of the light spectrum. We hear a very small amount of the audio spectrum. Our brains, although amazing, are limited computational devices. And so we integrate the information that we have, and we do a very good job at it as far as biological machines go. But we only have a very small amount of the picture. We have one puzzle piece in the entire puzzle. And we think we've got it. Right. And, it's, and because, because we have put ourselves in charge of the narrative, we're the writers of the story. Mm. But I had a, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a humbling thing often have this with my grandchild, uh, who now that we're into a stage where we're storytelling with each other and, you know, the little action figures and all the, the, of Alice in Wonderland nonsense of the, of the narrative kind of thing going on between the, with that age. But there will be times when I'm telling a story and, and the hand will go up. Well, well, grandpa, no, that's not what happens. And I'll say, okay, what does happen? And she proceeds to <laughs> take over. It's like tell it, um, a tandem storytelling, right? She takes over. Well, you're you're playing. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm thinking of role playing games. Yeah, <clears throat> and and so sometimes I think it makes us very uncomfortable to realize that there may be a lot of other storytellers out there who are nothing like us. Mm. We and and that's evident. Even this article takes us back to things like, well, we still want the white European narrative to be the one because, after all, we wrote that story across generations and generations, and therefore it must be so. And no other story can be of equal import. And we bloody well ought to learn that that's not the case. So maybe turtles are telling stories about us now, or whales. Yeah. Matt, uh, would we want to hear the things whales say about us? Or no. cows? Right. Or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, again, it's that idea of, um, I, you know, I think listeners have gotten uncomfortable in the past when we've talked about the teaching of history as being propaganda. But that's that's what it is. Every every civilization is going to have its own take on things that happened. And um, it's going to omit certain things and it's going to highlight other things. And um, just through the 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 exposure and through the repetition, we're going to inherently have some part of that story as part hmm. our part of our worldview, right? And then it's the job of critical thinking people, of philosophers, which we all are, to say, well, how much of this is true and how much of it is something that I've been told or something that I haven't been told or something that's been twisted, right? Mm -hmm. So, And even if it's true, do I care to respond to it or do I want to continue living the way I live and too bad for everything else? Because that's a response that, that some people give too. Yeah. All right. So other animals talk. Too bad for them. Uh, we have to live and we're the most important. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but maybe the animals are saying, we don't live, you don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> right. That's still probably a, a, a naturally selected for response, right? Because if you, if you look at the animal and, and plant kingdoms, right? 
there are species that that act that way, right? Because they might not have they might not have the capacity to know that things are relying on each other. As a matter of fact, it's sort of strange because it's it would appear on surface value with the the information we have that the plant kingdom is very familiar with this. The plant kingdom seems to know that the survival of one individual or one species affects the entire ecosystem. That that neurological, yeah. biological underground, so to speak, right. of communication. And but they still show biases, right? So if if a plant, if a tree is getting eaten or by bugs or burned down, it sends its nutrients out. It knows it's dying, so it sends its nutrients out through the through the fungal network. But it prefers its offspring. It'll still send <laughs> most of its nutrients to its offspring. But, um, you know, in the absence of that, these, these plants communicate and they, they, they seem to understand that a forest, for instance, is, is a uni, is a single organism and that they need to, they need to share nutrients, information. They need to do these things in order to survive. The animal kingdom seems to be much more primitive than that right they in animal kingdom if you have a a group of of howler monkeys or something right that's more focused towards um we we kind of have to clear out everybody else that's competing with us in order to survive and i think that gets passed on into humanity to the point now where we we deny changes to the planet we deny changes to Mm -hmm. the animal and plant kingdoms that that are supporting us that are part of this you know, unified. System. We have this magical thinking. Oh, it's going to go away. Oh, it's not as bad as it seems. Oh, well, when we really need to develop something, we'll just snap our fingers and we'll make technology that will make the planet all well. <laughs> wow, we're going to museums and looking at fossils of species that no longer exist yeah. because of the change to a climate yeah. or the the unavailability of a food source or these other things. Let's talk about communication and education. (laughs) How effective these things are. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's such a big topic. And like I said, we are certain to revisit it in the future. We talk about it almost every week. It's it's very pertinent to, to developing these concepts, but I'm glad that we devoted an entire episode to it. And until next time, keep on. Thank you.